we are in the final chapter of Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 50. This has been a two-year and three-month journey somewhere in that neighborhood. And uh, we have prayed and asked for God's blessing uh, over His Word this morning. So I want you to look with me, if you would, at Genesis 50. We're going to read this, and we're also going to spend, uh, in the New Testament today, we're going to spend a considerable amount of time uh, in First Corin- or, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So just warning you in advance that we'll be doing that. But let's read Genesis chapter 50. If you're at home, do not be distracted by your coffee. Do not be flicking through Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Pay attention. Genesis chapter 50. Let's read it. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Let's stop right there just for a second. Uh, That's the first 14 verses of Genesis 50. Let me just make a couple comments before we move on because where we move on from here is really the heart of what I want to discuss this morning. But because we've been going through verse by verse, and we're not going to leave anything out, just just simply want you to see that grieving is normal and it's good. And the grieving that's happening here is for the last of the three patriarchs uh, of God's people, Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has died, and because of Joseph's position in Egypt, there's this giant royal procession that goes back to the land of Canaan, very important. Jacob wants buried where his fathers were buried, where Abraham and where Isaac were buried. In fact, the end of chapter 49 is specific to that, uh, where he specifically says, I'm dying, take me back to the land of Canaan, do not bury me in Egypt. 
And so Joseph and his brothers honor that request, and they take him back to Canaan, uh, and they bury him there. uh, Jacob is 147 years old, passes away, and Genesis is almost to a close. Because God is showing us in the book of beginnings how his people Israel are launched into the world. And as we get ready to do that launching pad uh, into history, there is one final chapter uh, in the story of Joseph and his brothers. Now just as way of reminder, most of us are familiar with the story, and you remember what we've uh, spent a lot of time talking about. Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob, and he uh, was a little bit unwise after receiving a dream from God that showed his brothers and his father and everybody bowing down to him. Um, he shares that. It provokes jealousy and hatred that they already had because he had the multicolored coat. They sell him into slavery, and then Joseph uh, winds up in Potiphar's house, and he becomes an incredibly useful asset to Potiphar, and then Potiphar's wife uh, tries to seduce him. He says no, he's accused of rape, he's thrown in the prison falsely, and then he rises up through the ranks of the prison and becomes the most important administrative uh, person within the prison, and he interprets dreams um, for some of Pharaoh's servants. He's forgotten. Eventually, he's remembered all in the plan of God to get him in front of Pharaoh to rightly interpret the dream, to prepare Egypt for the famine that God was sending. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And he is the prime minister or second in command only under Pharaoh in Egypt. And that that brings us all the way back to the brothers in the years of famine going back to Joseph and, and seeking help and all of that. We spent a lot of time talking about it, but his brothers, now that dad is dead, they are worried. So that is where we're diving in and we're going to close this chapter completely and close out this family drama between Joseph and the brothers who sold him into slavery. Let's start back in at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now let's stop right there. The brothers are terrified because they are still afraid. And they've been here 17 years in the land of Egypt with, with dad, with Jacob. They, and Joseph has already forgiven them and he's already, all of that's already happened in the, in the preceding chapters. And they are still afraid. They are still afraid of Joseph uh, having retribution against them. And they're rightfully afraid. They're afraid because they sold him into slavery and left him for dead. And they are, at this point in their life, uh, totally beyond the point of making excuses for their sin. 
they are acknowledging it, and they are terrified of the potential consequences. Even though Joseph has shown nothing but kindness uh, to them, and, and they even invoke, well, Dad said, don't, don't kill them, don't bother them, forgive them. And they don't even come to face Joseph. They send servants to deliver the message. And I just want you to see, just to get a good, clear picture of Joseph, one last time, when it says at the end of verse uh, 17, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So the servants are speaking and Joseph is weeping over this idea that his brothers are still afraid. Now, the very next verse tells us that they, the brothers, upon hearing about Joseph's weeping, probably said, it may be safe for us to go ourselves. So look at verse 18. This is really, verse 18 through 21, is really going to be the meat and potatoes today. His brothers also came and fell down before him. If that sounds familiar, that's exactly the dream that Joseph had. His brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the meat and the potatoes of our sermon. Throughout um, this series in Genesis, I have come to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 on multiple occasions. I got to confess, I am somewhat uh, not, I didn't want to have to do this online. Uh, I, would, I would have rather had everybody here so I could see your faces. So I'm imagining your faces, Celebration Church folks, uh, and who knows who else is watching. But I, I want you to hear this because this is, to me, so foundational and fundamentally different than what I would have been teaching from this pulpit ten years ago. And the reason that I'm making it a, a dramatic pause is because I want you to think with me about verse 20 and the words that Joseph is saying. You meant it for evil. You meant it for evil. You meant my being thrown into the pit for evil. The thoughts of your heart were sinfully prideful, sinfully jealous, sinfully angry. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God allowed and used intentionally, on purpose, your wrong attitude, your wrong sinful desires. God used that. He meant what you meant for evil. God meant for good. Those words are very important to me. It's an important theological understanding. It's an important view of who God is, that God is sovereign over everything. And that is a difficult proposition for many, many people, especially when you think 
about the words being used. Let me just simply say this. God means everything to be worked out for His glory and for the good of His people. And Joseph actually says this in this verse. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. God used your evil to accomplish a good that is for a large number of people. So, while we can look at the life of Joseph, and it's really important for us to look at Joseph, zero in on him as an individual, and then scale back out to the big picture, because that is the way we need to be thinking as Christians. Yes, we as an individual matter. He, God knows the, hair, the number of hair on my head. He knows every thought and intention of my heart. He is a discerner of motivations and everything about us as individuals. And He has specific trials and blessings. He has specific afflictions and specific comforts that are meant to mold and shape us as individuals. But then you have to step back out and realize that it is not only for me as an individual or you, but it's for a greater, larger purpose that you may never know what that is. You may never see what it is. And this is the very essence of what trusting God is. It's saying, I don't always see the totality of the purpose of God, the completeness of the purpose of God, but I know that this part of God is true. He's working even things that are looking evil and terrible and dark and troubling and awful, He is working those for something good. That is really important, church, for all of us to see. As individuals, as nations, as families, that God is at work accomplishing His purpose. And, and I, I understand, I, I see the faces frowning up as you even hear me say this, because when you, when you think about your own life and you think about hardships and you think about God being good, how can God, who is good, have these bad things going on? I don't have all the answers to those questions, but I do have this answer. There is no purposeless evil. God is using all of everything to accomplish good ends. And there is nobody qualified in the universe to do this other than God. Now, I'm out of order for my, uh, my Bible uh, Scripture flippers that are doing all that, but if, if you look at Acts 2.23, and I'm not going to read that, but if you look at Acts 2.23, um, Acts 2.23 explains that the greatest example of God using the evil of mankind to accomplish the good plan that God has is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ when Peter tells the audience on the day of Pentecost, you men with lawless hands, according to the predetermined 
purpose of God, well, actually they put it up for me, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Think about what this verse is saying. Jesus was crucified, the Bible tells us, in many places before the foundation of the world. And it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge does not mean God looks down the corridors of time to see what will happen. That will put God in a position of not being God. He has to figure out what's going to happen. That is not what God does. God does not look down the corridors of time to see what's going to happen. The foreknowledge of God simply means that He is intimately aware of all details of all things, and in His foreknowledge is the definite plan of God. The definite plan of God was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So the definite plan of God is the crucifixion of the Son of God, and we we know that and we believe that, and we also believe, as Peter accuses them, that it was done by the hands of lawless men. Lawless hands were a part of the definite plan of God. Lawless hands that murdered the Son of God, which I would, I would submit to the audience, is the most heinous, sinful act that has ever been committed is the murder of Jesus Christ. That has to be sin number one that was committed on the planet. Throughout all of history, He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. Instead, they rejected Him, despised Him, plotted against Him, murdered Him out of hatred and jealousy, filled with Satan himself. And that was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Wow! What do you do with this? You look and you step back and you say, what was the purpose of Jesus dying for me? What was the purpose of God's plan? And the purpose was salvation for untold millions, potentially billions of human beings over the last uh, 2,000 years. Well, really, since the beginning of creation. God has good purposes in difficult, troublesome, dark, evil moments in our life. God is not the author of evil. God is not tempted by sin, nor does He tempt anyone with sin. So there are some complexities to what I'm saying, and I recognize that. But what I do see, and what I want us to see, is that God means it for good. He is turning everything that appears to be what we call setbacks, disappointments, or outright evil injustices that happen against us, God, not one injustice will go unpunished, and not one deed or one moment of our life that is either depression, or is fear, or is sin, no matter what it is, God is going to work all of that out for good. That is what Romans 8.28 says. We know that all 
things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. God is working out in His plan something great. And in the meantime, His people have to see these truths to hang on while the storms of life and whatever else is happening, so we hang on so that we are not blown away by every wind of doctrine that says God isn't there, He's not here, He's forgotten you, He's left you, or worse, God's disappointed in you because this trial has happened and, uh, and, and you aren't strong enough in faith to figure it out. That is, uh, that is a terrible way to be thinking. That is a terrible way for the church to be thinking. God is standing up in heaven with a celestial clipboard, keeping track of how well you are praying, keeping track of how well you are doing in your faith, and it's all your fault that you haven't figured it out, and you're just totally abandoned to your own resources. Heaven forbid that we think in such a way, because if that's true, all of you are doomed. Because left up to our own resources, we don't come to a conclusion like Joseph does. How does Joseph get here? By the way, he's about 50 at this point, and he has went through terrible trials, many of which none of us can even possibly relate to. And he, at the end of it, rather than being embittered, rather than being frustrated, instead he's saying, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. There is a tremendous freedom in resting in the knowledge that God is in control and is taking us where He wants to take us. I want you to also see that this is not just individualistic. In fact, the emphasis, I believe, should not be on me or you as an individual, but on the greater populace. Joseph says, you meant it for evil against me. God meant it for good, but he doesn't stay. He doesn't then say, to fulfill my destiny as the prime minister of Egypt, proving that I am great. That is not what he says. That's the way we think. God's got a destiny for me. There are so many books and bookstores and they should all be burned about your destiny and all this kind of stuff, if you're thinking that way, I would like to strongly encourage you to quit thinking that selfish thinking of your destiny. The destiny is the glory of God and you are the donkey He may choose to ride into Jerusalem on. And you need to view yourself as the donkey, not as the one receiving the resplendent praise and glory. It is, it is an infection in American and Western Christianity in particular to individualize our destiny to such a degree that we have delusions of grandeur on one end and depths of despair when it doesn't work out the way we think on the other end. It is dangerous to think that way. Instead, Joseph, who yes, is the prime minister of Egypt, yes, he's really important went through years of hell on earth to get there and recognizes it's not about me. It is to do what? Bring it about that many people should be kept alive. I remember, and my wife will remember, 
1997 and 1998, going through a terrible time personally, struggling with a lot of issues like this, um, because this is a deep and difficult, I, I recognize that what I'm saying is, it's like it grates against our humanity, because we like being in charge of everything. And I remember going through a really dark and difficult time of depression, mental anguish. Some of you have heard my testimony before. And I remember, and I could point to the place at the Celebration Center in Belpre, Ohio, where it happened. Um, just feeling so overwhelmed with this depression and this anxiety, and it was all pervasive. In a church service, greeting people, I was on staff as an intern, seeing this little old lady, I don't remember her name, and she was having a difficult time. I believe her husband had recently passed away. And as I looked at her, I was flooded with this sense of compassion and this sense of, Steve, all the difficulty, all the pain, all the frustration, all of it is leading towards something greater. It is for the people. It is for the people that you suffer. It is for others. Now, I didn't think that way in 1997 and 98, so I struggled with that concept. So I definitely believe that was something that the Lord was impressing on my heart. But I have never let that phrase has never left my heart or mind. It is for the people the lost and the dying, the hurting and the bewildered, the confused, the depressed, the anxious, the brothers and sisters in Christ that are struggling, and the sinner who needs Jesus. What we go through as Christians is not so that we can create empires of our own. It is for the people. Church, wake up. God is calling us to be lifelong offerings of sacrifice to help the world around us, and the generation we're given to live in. If you're alive today in the midst of all the craziness, if we could get our eyes off of what we're looking at on the news, off of our problems and our bank accounts, off of our shortcomings and disappointments, and start saying, Lord, where is my verse 20 where you said that it was for people to be kept alive? Let me say this cautiously and carefully. Joseph was privileged to know why he suffered. There was seven years of famine that was coming, and God brought him through the school of hard knocks to get him to the place to be the prime minister and chief administrator of Egypt to save countless hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of lives in, in the Egyptian world. Sometimes we don't get to know what the specific purpose is. But this verse at least tells me that there is a greater and larger purpose, and it's a good one, that God has for all of our suffering. We need to finish this sermon in Corinthians. Because I want you to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I want you to see a New Testament parallel. Because some of you may be saying, Steve, I, I'm going to need more Scripture for this today. And there is a lot of Scripture 
There is a lot of Scripture that confirms that God is at work in the midst of suffering and pain. And what He's doing is something good. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Simple way to say this, God's going to comfort you in your affliction in such a way that you can turn around with that comfort and comfort others. That tells me that Joseph was declaring a principle of God in his sovereign purposes. He brings comfort and good out of evil and darkness. He brings it out of his people. It rebounds to the or redounds to his glory and his praise as we, his people, show God's comfort to others with the comfort that we ourselves have been comforted with. Many of you have experienced terrible things that now in your life are able to turn around and say, I understand your pain. And I, 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 have some, I can share with you how God comforted me. That's not all that he says. Look at verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, plural, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. I love the tone of what Paul is saying. Yes, we're sharing in abundant sufferings, the sufferings of Christ, but through Christ we are also sharing in comfort abundantly. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Do you see the direction that this is going? The direction this is going is not just on me focused on the comfort that I get from the Holy Spirit, from times in His presence in worship. Jennifer singing sometimes, and she's my wife, but sometimes hearing her sing in her worship, it, it's a comfort to me. Sometimes... Um, hearing an old hymn, sometimes hearing uh, a great sermon, sometimes being reminded through Christian radio or whatever it is, all of that is wonderful, but, but it really keeps, and Paul keeps pushing it back out to other people. Look at verse 6 again. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. If we're afflicted, it's, it's for your benefit. If we're comforted, it's for your benefit. That's what he's saying. Our hope, well, I skipped a part. It is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Paul is saying that this is the normal part, this is normal Christian living. The abundant sufferings of Christ and the abundant comforts that come through Christ. This is actually really, really good news. And it'd be a great place to stop, but we can't stop because the next part is going to help answer, the next three verses are going to help answer some questions. 
For we do not, verse 8, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. The Apostle Paul was so burdened by the troubles that they had in Asia that they thought they were going to die. Look, keep reading with me. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now stop and wait just a second. He is telling me that we received this burden that was so heavy we thought we were going to die. There are people listening who have been so depressed They have flirted with suicide. There are people who have wished actively, just let me die. Let me die in a car wreck on my way home from work. That way I'm not not, uh, committing suicide. There are people who have felt the weight of depression or anxiety, our culture of death that presses in all the time, the despair, to such a degree that you relate to these words. We despaired of life. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. That, that to me, is Paul saying, we thought it was going to be our time. This was going to be it. And listen to how he looks at that. But that, that affliction, that suffering, that weight of death we felt, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's saying, you may feel like you're going to die. You may feel overwhelmed by death. That is to make you rely on the God who raises the dead. To get your eyes off, not on yourself, get, not rely on ourselves, but to rely on God. God has purpose in affliction that causes us to hit our knees and say, Lord, without You, I'm dead. And if you are there today, I encourage you to drop to your knees and do just that. Lord, without You, I'm a goner. I'm I'm lost. But listen to how hopeful this is. This is not Debbie Downer verses. Because in verse 10, listen to the hope here. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. He delivered us. They felt like they were going to die, but He delivered us. And He will deliver us. That is a future tense, hopeful statement that Paul just made. He did deliver us, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. We feel like these words are shouting. I know I'm getting loud. But we place our hope on God. The purpose of the affliction is to get us to rely not on ourselves, but on the God. And then we recognize as we are looking at Him and hoping in Him that He is the Deliverer. He's delivered in the past. He will deliver again. We've set our hope on Him, that He will deliver us again. 
Verse 11. Life-altering. Connect this to Genesis 50-20, where he says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, to bring it about that many would be saved. And that little thing goes off in your mind that says, well, if that's really true, and God's just going to work everything out, then we just sit around and do nothing. Which is clearly not what Joseph did. He made all the plans and preparations. It's not what anybody in the Bible has ever done who believed that God was in charge. Look at verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. You also must help us by prayer. You also must help us by prayer. I've just declared that God is doing this comfort through the affliction. We're going to be able to help others. I just said that we are being taught not to rely on ourselves but on God. I just said that we're placing our hope in Him because He delivered us in the past. He will deliver us in the future. We are focused on Him. And then I'm going to also say there's a part that all of us have to play and that is to pray. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Church, God does in fact have a plan. He does in fact have a purpose. He is accomplishing good even out of the darkness, even out of the difficulty. He's comforting the afflicted. And part of the plan of God is for you to be the comfort that somebody needs. That means picking up a telephone. That means sending a text. That means you are a part of God's plan. And that's not the only thing you're a part of. You may be a Joseph that has to organize and administrate, and he gave you a gift to do it. You may be a Seth and a Dan in the back here who are gifted to do all this stuff they're doing to make live stream possible. You may be a worship person. You may be a children's person uh, for children's church, just in the context of our church. But you may be that encourager at work. You may be that person that preaches the gospel to a group of people that wouldn't have heard it otherwise. You are the hands and the feet that God is using as the body of Christ to accomplish His purpose. And a big part of that is prayer. God uses our prayer to accomplish His ends. God has a plan. God has a purpose. We are to trust in that. We are to trust in God's plan. And part of that active trust is the actions of faith, the actions of kindness, the preaching of the gospel, the gifts that God's given us, and prayer on a consistent and steady basis that says, I am lining up with you, Lord, and I'm going to pray for my brothers and sisters. I'm going to pray for ministries. I'm going to pray for our leadership. I'm going to pray for our country. I'm going to pray so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Church Genesis has been a thrill because Genesis 50-20 showed me that God is sovereign. He's in charge. He's got a good purpose. He's taking us somewhere. He's got a future tense purpose with a present tense hope. 
The present tense hope is God's in charge and He's taking me somewhere into the future and I'm going to trust Him and along the way I'm going to be comforted and I'm going to be an instrument of comfort. I'm going to pray. I'm going to help others. I'm going to do what He's called me to do and I'm going to be bold because if God's got the plan, then me running with God, there is nothing that can stop what God has in our future. Do not let COVID-19, do not let presidential elections, do not let news and Twitter and Facebook ruin you to such a degree that you are focused on the things of this world primarily. Get your eyes on Jesus and what He may need you to do today, tomorrow at work. Whatever the case may be, trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today for Your Word. Lord, I may have left stuff out. I may have emphasized things, God, that aren't as helpful as they could be. Lord, I pray that You would take all of this and You would use it for Your kingdom and and to help people to know that You are good, that Your mercy endures forever. And Lord, we put our trust in You. We put our faith in You. We put our hope in You. You are the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. In the same way we share in the sufferings of Christ, we share abundantly in the hope and the comfort that You bring. God, if people are struggling in dark depression, anxieties and fears, in sin, wherever they're at, God, show them Your salvation. Open their eyes to see You as the God of all hope and the God of redemption. Lord, we give You glory. We give You honor. We pray that You would have us shine like lights this week at work and wherever we go. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.